Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. So IXL Learning is a multi-subject online program for kids, and it's used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. 14 million students use it. And if you have kids who are trying to get ahead or if they're struggling with certain subjects or studying for a test that's coming up, IXL is this personalized learning tool that you can use to help kids learn what they need to learn faster. And they have programs K through 12, so there's something for every level. And some of my nieces and nephews have been homeschooled, and so my family has used tools like this to supplement curriculum or to brush up or to sharpen skills. IXL Learning has won tons of awards, and so many students have benefited from it. So make an impact on your child's learning, get IXL now. And Ologies listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash Ologies. So visit IXL.com slash Ologies to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Oh, hey, it's that guy in your video editing class who chews so much gum, you're actually worried about him. Allie Ward, back with another episode of Ologies. So this episode, I'm just, I'm going to say this up top, just get it out of the way. It's out of this world. Okay, I said it. It's out of this world. Now we're going to start by talking about the passions that lead to a career in extraterrestrial alien searches, as well as lay down some foundations on missions in our solar system, and then we'll get to what could live where. But before we get to alive things on distant space bodies, let's thank some Earthlings. So thank you to all the people who make the podcast possible on patreon.com slash ologies, all my buddies there. To all the folks sporting Ologies swag from ologiesmerch.com, thank you to all the folks who are rating and making sure you're subscribed and leaving reviews for me to peruse like a semi-creep, such as, for example, one left by anonymous epidemiologist this week who said, more years of grad school than I like to admit tends to hamper my ability to talk about my research without being boring, condescending, inaccurate, or worse, all three. I love this podcast because it helps me figure out how to talk about my own work in a way that is true, but hopefully relatable. I'm going to say I think a lot of folks listening probably related to that. So boom, there you go. Okay, astrobiology, let's get to it. Once called exobiology, but let's consult the Greek, shall we? So astro comes from the word for star, and biology has its roots in the verb to live. So what is out there living on those ding-dang stars? What's on the planets? That's the big question. Is anything alive out there? What are the odds? Is it big? Is it small? Is it cooler than us? So to get some answers, we'll consult a professional. So over the course of 11 months and 27 gentle, desperate emails from me, this ologist kindly obliged and the resulting interview is I was about literally about to say stellar. I'm not going to, I swear that was an accident, 
but it was a stellar interview. He's such a great dude. So he has been a researcher at the SETI Institute, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence that was founded by Carl Sagan and Frank Drake. He's a National Geographic explorer who has trekked the Arctic and down to the depths of the sea. You may have seen him in James Cameron's Aliens of the Deep, and is currently the Deputy Chief Scientist for Solar System Exploration at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. And side note, the opinions he expresses therein are his own and not those of JPL or NASA. Because when you're in charge of looking for space aliens for NASA, you gotta toss out some disclaimers. He stopped by last week after work, and we settled in for an evening talk about icy moons and space drills tiny extraterrestrials, sci-fi movies, extremophile tardigrades, subsurface oceans, squirrels, ghosts. Okay, I brought up the ghost, I'm sorry. Various voyages made by NASA spacecraft, and essentially, what is lurking in the great darkness of the universe? And does it want to kill us? So make some space in your brain for the brilliant and wonderful astrobiologist, Dr. Kevin Peter Hand. Okay, that's what I thought, but just in case it was Hond, and I've never said it aloud, I thought I'd ask. Now, you are an astrobiologist. Correct. Uh, when you toss that out at parties, do people know what that means? Uh, no, because I don't toss it out at parties. Okay, <laughs> that's one way to avoid that. Yeah. What exactly does it mean? Uh, it's, a, it's a very good question. Many different ways to answer it, but simply put, astrobiology is the study of the living universe. Um, and yeah, that's that's it in a nutshell. The study of the living universe. Correct. So this is excluding rocks, air. Well, keep, uh, keep going and we'll okay. come back to some of that. Uh, rocks, air, light, <laughs> uh, cars, <laughs> minerals. Yeah, so, um, well, so what's important about it being the study of the living universe is that oftentimes when people think about astrobiology, they say, you know, okay, this is the search for life beyond Earth. And that's correct. That's certainly part of astrobiology. But what's also very central to astrobiology is the study of the origin, evolution, and future of life on Earth. Where did we come from? Where are we going? Um, how did life originate? And so... Uh, when you think about the living universe, of course, <laughs> right now, uh, all we know of is life on Earth. We have yet to find even a little speck of life beyond Earth. But based on what we know from life on Earth and based on what we know about the other major sciences, uh, physics, chemistry, geology, uh, we can make the prediction that if the conditions are right, life should potentially arise beyond Earth. So, to be an interplanetary alien hunter, it helps to have a background that's a bit interdisciplinary. So, Kevin, Dr. Hand, got his bachelor's from Dartmouth in physics with a minor in astronomy and studied some psychology in there as well, then went on to get a master's at Stanford in mechanical engineering with a focus on robots. He continued on at Stanford there for a PhD, and his dissertation was titled, on the physics and chemistry of the ice shell and subsurface ocean of Europa. 
It used Galileo spacecraft magnetometer data. More on that later. Now, the abstract for Kevin's dissertation uses the term halophilic organisms. And yes, I looked that shit up. And halophilic means, I love me some salt in science talk. So next time you single-handedly finish off the onion dip at a party, don't be ashamed. Just say I'm a halophile. Just own it, salty bitches. How did you start to get into this field? Were you more of an astro nerd or a biology nerd or like an alien nerd? (laughs) What was your history? Um, sorry for the, the sort of cough, uh, but, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I'm a bit of a intellectual platypus in that. Um, okay. <laughs> so the, the, uh, uh, I studied physics and astronomy and psychology in undergrad. And, and part of the rationale for the psychology was, um, well, let's say we do get a signal from extraterrestrial intelligence. How do we, with our five senses, our senses that evolved under the conditions that planet Earth has presented us with, but from a um, just uh, captivation standpoint, my curiosity and, and my obsession with this question started at a young age and just looking up at the, uh, at the night sky. Did you see... E.T.? Did you see aliens? Like, there's no lack of aliens in pop culture. Yes. What's your What's your flavor? What's your flavor of alien entertainment? Um, well, that's, a, that's a broad question. Well, uh, so to your question of, of E.T., um, as, a, as a young child, uh, I, I grew up in a small town in Vermont, and so the night sky of Vermont uh, captivated my imagination early on. You, it's, it's hard to grow up under a clear night sky and not wonder what could be out there. Um, and so that, coupled with Carl Sagan's Cosmos, both the TV series and his, his books, uh, and some great uh, science teachers early on, uh, th- those were all big influence. The cosmos is rich beyond measure. The total number of stars in the universe is larger than all the grains of sand and all the beaches of the planet Earth. And then, yeah, E.T., Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, not only did I watch E.T., but uh, I also was E.T. for Halloween. <gasps> nice! <laughs> um, How many my, years in a row? My, my, uh, still going. Still, yeah, I haven't stopped, Allie. I haven't <laughs> stopped. It's a tradition. Uh, yeah, no, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, as a kid, uh, my mom sewed a, an E.T. outfit uh, for me, and, oh, I just lived in that thing. That's the best. I can just imagine they're like, Kevin, it's February. Like, Shut up, Mom! Not taking it off. <laughs> so when looking for alien life, real quick, let's get some stats out of the way. Now, the Big Bang happened approximately 13.8 billion years ago. For more on that, you can see the two-parter with cosmologist Dr. Katie Mack. And Earth has been around for 4.5 billion years, and there's evidence that life began on our planet at least 3.7 billion years ago, maybe even over 4 billion years ago. So now, we are one itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny-weeny, tiny-tiny, pale blue dot in the cosmos. But we know there are a lot of grains of sand out there. So how many could have life? This is where you just grab an envelope and flip it over, because it's time for the Drake equation. So Frank Drake, he's a round-faced man of 88 who looks like he could play a grandpa in an oatmeal commercial. He's one of the founders of SETI, and in their very first meeting in 1961, he busted out 
the Drake Equation, posing that the number of civilizations in our galaxy with which communication might be possible is based on, ready? Whole bunch of math. Here we go. The rate of star formation, the fraction of those stars that even have planets, and the number of planets per star in a habitable zone, and then the fraction that actually do that develop life, the fraction of those planets that have intelligent life or civilization, and then the fraction of those civilizations that make technology that can communicate their own existence to the universe times the length of time they're beaming their head into the cosmos. So this Drake equation can come up with different outcomes that vary widely depending on your estimations for all those factors. But overwhelmingly, at the very most, our chances of being alone are 30%. Just 30%. Based on some calculations that came out last summer by some Oxford astrobiologist, which included someone on the team named Anders Sandberg. Not to be confused with Brooklyn Nine-Nine's Andy Sandberg. Welcome to the Space Olympics, the year 3022. Anyway, that back-of-the-envelope deduction is called a Fermi problem. This was named after the Italian physicist Enrico Fermi, who's known for those equations like how many piano tuners are there in Chicago? First, you got to figure out how many people are in Chicago, how many people have pianos, how many people need tuners, blah, 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 blah. Also, Fermi famously uttered what is now known as Fermi's paradox when discussing astrobiology over a summer luncheon in 1950, discussing the seeming absence of aliens he asked informally, oh, where is everybody? 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 Fermi's paradox has become one of the smartest, stupid questions ever asked. Now, speaking of those questions, back to Kevin. When Kevin was an undergrad, he interned at the NASA Ames Research Center, and he went to see his hero, Frank Drake, give a talk. I love this story. And I was obsessed with this stuff since I was a little kid. Got to see Frank Drake give a talk. And um, afterward, with a lot of trepidation, I said, Dr. Drake, um, I just had a little question for you. It's probably crazy, etc. cetera. Um, and I said, yeah, so if we think about life on Earth, um, what do you think is going to be the next tool using communicating uh, organism? Looked at me. That's not a crazy question. It's 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 obviously going to be squirrels and raccoons. <laughs> Mind blown. Oh my god. <laughs> and, uh, and he continued. He explained his rationale, which is quite sound. Which is that those creatures are, are coexisting with us right now, uh-huh. and they are problem solving. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> right? This is going to delight my dad, who has now constructed four squirrel houses on the property. Yes, exactly. It's like, I am welcoming the next species. 100%. And uh, I like Frank's logic. And, and uh, that was, that was it's a fond memory that I have of my first <laughs> interaction with a, a living, breathing scientist. And, and uh, to some extent, having my uh, crazy obsession validated by his like, no, great question. <laughs> Raccoons and squirrels. The best. Oh, my God. So ask smart people stupid questions because they're great questions. Also, hide your wallet from raccoons. Don't tell any of your secrets to squirrels, dad. Now, in his work, Kevin has traveled to all sorts of biomes, but he says that if you have the travel bug, you don't have to do astrobiology specifically to have fieldwork adventures. Kind of any earth science will get you out and about. Also, side note, there's a real need 
for folks who want to study geobiology, which is the study of microbes that eat rocks. Anyway, he loves to bop around for science. I grew up doing a lot of skiing, climbing, mountaineering, various things, and and I've got to get out and see planet Earth. And uh, it's exploring planet Earth is is part of what grounds me, centers me, connects me back with the night sky, uh, and uh, and helps reignite that 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 curiosity and that that passion for exploration and discovery. Uh, and so I feel very fortunate that I've been able to have some research programs where I've gone to Antarctica, um, made dives in submersibles to the bottom of, to some hydrothermal vents in our ocean, uh, gone up to uh, the Arctic and explored icy environments up there. Uh, yeah, so it's, uh, it's been amazing going to those places. Now, what is a day in the life of an astrobiologist like? Like, what does your work look like? Yeah, well, that's there's many different layers to that. Um, my so I'm a, a scientist at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and part of the job of scientists at JPL is not only to do their own research and to publish papers, publish or perish, et cetera, et cetera, write proposals, and get in that that uh, hamster wheel of of, of research. Um, but we also are very engaged with the formulation and implementation of missions, Ooh. missions to all sorts of different places, um, uh, small objects, big objects, nearby objects, far away objects. Uh, and for me, what that means is uh, a, a focus on worlds in our solar system that could harbor life. <laughs> Sorry, just a, a mouth theremin over here. <laughs> Couldn't help it. I focus most of my time, both from a research standpoint and a mission standpoint, on Jupiter's moon Europa and to a slightly lesser extent, Saturn's moon Enceladus. Why are we looking at moons so much rather than the planets? Yeah, so this has been one of the big game changers in astrobiology. Um, I think people probably appreciate that a uh, an amazing revolution has happened in our understanding of uh, of planets existing beyond our own solar system. Mm -hmm. uh, this goes back to the early 1990s when the first exoplanets were discovered. Fast forward to to today, and we've got both ground-based telescopic observations and uh, spacecraft observations. Kepler being the the most recent example that have discovered um, thousands of exoplanets. So I think people are, are, for the most part, pretty familiar with the exoplanet revolution in uh, the, the prospect for potentially habitable worlds. Okay, quick aside, in case you're like, remind me what Kepler was all about again. Okay, so this is a space telescope that NASA launched in 2009, and it flew around to determine the percentage of Earth-like planets out there. It weighed about 2,300 pounds, and I did a bunch of comparisons size-wise. It was about as big as a Humvee. It scooted around, taking dope-ass photos, observing 530,506 stars. It discovered 2,662 exoplanets, and after nine years, way beyond its expected lifetime, Kepler ran out of fuel. Last fall in 2018, it was deactivated with a goodnight command sent for mission control. It's now just kicking it in space millions of miles away, orbiting the sun. But its data helped astrobiologists conclude that there may be 11 billion 
Earth-like planets orbiting sun-like stars in the Milky Way galaxy. 11 billion planets in the Milky Way galaxy, a lot like Earth. Whoa! Also, it was named after Johann Kepler, who in the 1600s was a contemporary of Tycho Brahe, the Danish astronomer who not only had a beer-guzzling drunk pet moose that lived in his castle, but also had a metal nose after a sword-fighting incident, and who later died after his bladder exploded because he was too polite to go potty at a fancy dinner party. For more on that, see the Selenology Moon episode. But anyway, Kepler changed the game in helping discover so many planets that could harbor life. The other um, big game-changer, in my opinion, has been what I like to call sort of a new Goldilocks. Ooh. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I think I see where this is going. Um, so in the, in the early days of astronomy and planetary science and uh, astrobiology, back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, when planetary scientists, astronomers, exobiologists thought about what it takes for a world to be habitable, that framework was largely based on our uh, Earth biases. Mm-hmm. Wherever we look and find liquid water on Earth, we generally find life. Therefore, you need liquid water for life. And in order for a planet to harbor liquid water, uh, you've got to have liquid water on the surface in contact with a nice thick atmosphere. And for a planet to be able to sustain those kind of conditions, you have to be at just the right distance from your parent star so that you're not too hot or not too cold. Uh, if you're too close to your parent star like Venus is, then you're too, too hot and you probably boiled off any ocean that you once had. If you're too far away like Mars, then maybe some of the water froze out or you, um, you lost much of your water to space. But if you're at the Earth's sun distance, then you're in that sort of Goldilocks sweet spot. And it was neither too hot nor too cold. It was just right. And you can have liquid water on the surface of your planet and, um, and potentially it's off to the races from a biology standpoint. That Goldilocks scenario has kind of been the paradigm. Mm-hmm. What we've learned in the past few decades, and this was largely informed by the Voyager spacecraft and then the Galileo spacecraft and then the Cassini spacecraft that went into the outer solar system. Quick aside, let's do a rapid rundown of these spacecrafts for your next pub trivia victory. Okay, you ready? So Voyager 1 and 2 are a set of twin spacecrafts launched in 1977. They explored all of the giant planets of our outer solar system. We're talking Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. 48 of their moons, plus a bunch of planetary rings, some magnetic fields. So as of November 5th, 2018, both are now exploring interstellar space. This is between 11 and 13 billion miles away. So NASA JPL's website has a constantly updated ticker of their location, which is kind of like, find my friends, but for 40-year-old, very famous and respected spacecraft. Now, Galileo, was launched in 1989. It got to Jupiter in 1995, and it orbited the Jovian, aka Jupiterian, system. It did 11 flybys of Jupiter's moon Europa during this outer space stint. It went from 1989 to 2003. Now, Cassini was launched in 1997. This 
was all about Saturn. And it entered Saturn's orbit in 2004. It did two flybys of Venus, saw a cool asteroid, checked out Jupiter, and it also deployed a lander on Titan, which is one of Saturn's moons, in 2005. And then we crashed and burned it on purpose in September 2017. Okay, so moons. Europa is one of Jupiter's. Titan is one of Saturn's. Now, if you already knew that, awesome. Here's something you might not know. In Scotland, it's illegal to walk a pig on a leash. That these moons of the outer solar system are presenting us with a new Goldilocks scenario. It's a Goldilocks scenario where the energy to maintain and sustain liquid water comes not from the energy of your parent star, uh, but rather from the energy of tides, the tug and pull that these moons experience as they go around their their gas giants or their ice giants. Um, and so uh, the, the Jovian system, the, the moons of Jupiter, are a great example of this. There are four large moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. Io does not have an ocean. Io doesn't really have any water. Io orbits Jupiter and... Io is tugged to such a great degree that it is the most volcanically active body in our solar system. Wow! More volcanically active than the Earth. Oh my God. Volcanoes are erupting on Io right now. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's just a beautiful, beautiful gem of a world. And it really does kind of look like a gemstone when you look at these pictures. It's a lava party happening so far away. It is. It is. Uh, Break out the popcorn and just (laughs) watch. Spring break Uh, on Io. And so... uh, so uh, in this new Goldilocks paradigm, uh, Io is kind of like Venus. It's got too much tidal energy. It's too close, or it's it, it, you know, Venus is too close to to uh, warm. Io has got too much tidal activity. Let's go to the further furthest out of the large moons, Callisto. Now, Callisto, we think, it does have an ocean trapped beneath a very thick ice shell, but Callisto has very little tidal energy dissipation going on in it. So in that scenario Callisto is kind of like Mars it's it's maybe doesn't have quite enough energy to um uh to really make it a uh, an ocean that we could explore and and think could sustain life today but in the middle we've got Europa and Ganymede and Europa in particular we think occupies this new Goldilocks sweet spot where it's got um just the right amount of tidal energy dissipation so as to sustain a global salty liquid water ocean that's um, 100 kilometers or 60 miles in depth. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's the right response. <laughs> How deep are our oceans? So it's about 10 times as deep as our ocean. Holy smokes, yeah. the oh. octopods they must have. <laughs> so in the Mariana Trench, we're about 7 miles deep, 11 mm-hmm. kilometers down. Europa's ocean, 10 times as deep. So our oceans are 7 or so miles deep. But where did the water come from? Kevin says there are two sources. Water from the rocks from which Earth itself formed. And then there's what they call water that's exotic in its delivery. So coming from comets or asteroids, this is like Postmates, but a dirty ball of frozen space ocean. Ding dong. I'll get it. And so, yeah, water elsewhere in the solar system was delivered to the Earth. And when it comes to finding water elsewhere, we now that it, know that it exists not just on Earth, but also on our moon and these various uh, asteroids, comets, the moons of the outer solar system, uh, in the permafrost of Mars. Oh, my God. Yeah, there's a lot of water Crazy. out there. And, and I should be clear, when I say water, 
I'm not differentiating. Uh, for the most part, I'm referring to water in ice form. Right. When we get to Europa and the ocean worlds, there we are then talking about water in the liquid phase. Slishy, sloshy water Slushies. is what a lot yeah. of scientists call it, just in case you need to yeah. use that in a meeting. Um, <laughs> so there's plenty of water on Jupiter's moon Europa, both in ice and in liquid form, and is deep. Now, could extraterrestrials be lurking in those deep, dark waters? Europa's small. It's about the size of our moon. It's, uh, Europa's about one-seventh of the Earth's gravity. Uh, so when you do the math, the pressure within Europa's ocean is comparable to, it's a, it's a bit more, but it's comparable to the pressure found within the deepest trenches of our ocean. Oh. And so when we think about, well, you know, could life survive uh, within Europa's ocean, we can actually do the experiment and look at places on planet Earth where the conditions are comparable and say, oh, wow, life, life found a way in that environment that has parameters similar to Europa's ocean or Enceladus's ocean and so on and so forth. Life will find a way, as you once so eloquently put it. And we can make the sort of biological plausibility connection. So Kevin says that they analyze magnetometer data to figure out what's creating the gravity fields on those worlds. And then with a lot of whiteboard number crunching, came to the conclusion that Europa is encrusted in ice with liquid salty water below it. But how thick is that magic shell of ice? So most of his colleagues would say, eh, like 20 kilometers thick. But he's in the minority. He thinks it's quite a bit thinner, perhaps less than 10 kilometers thick. So when do we get to bore into it like an icy coconut? Well, NASA is planning to launch the orbiting space probe, that's called the Europa Clipper, in about 2022. And that's going to take a bunch of sassy photos and determine some chemical composition. It'll set the stage for a chilly, icy Europa landing by 2030. What do we call this lander? Well, Kevin kicked around the nickname Europa Landing Probe for Surface Astrobiology, or ELSA. How will they bust through this ice? This isn't a creme brulee. At JPL, they're prototyping these robotic arms and drills and saws and sampling systems. And some of the oceanic diving technology that they're tinkering with has a win-win bonus because it's making waves in our own undersea exploration for this little planet we call Earth. And now Europa, is that where we're really looking in terms of searching for something alive is that really where all eyes are kind of on Europa? Well, uh, I love to highlight three prime ocean world candidates. Uh, Europa, Enceladus, and Titan. Mm -hmm. uh, Titan, when we talk about Titan briefly first and we can come back to it. Uh, Titan is just an amazing world with its atmosphere and liquid methane, ethane yeah. lakes carving out its icy surface. And there's uh, liquid water ocean beneath its ice crust. And from the standpoint of astrobiology, Titan is my favorite place to go and look for weird life. Hey. And what I mean by weird life is life unlike life as we know it. Life as we know it is based on liquid water as the solvent, the, the substance in which the chemical reactions of life take place. And those chemical reactions in the building blocks are, of course, based on carbon. We are a carbon and water-based life form. Mm -hmm. On Titan, life would potentially also be carbon-based, but the solvent 
might be liquid methane and ethane in those lakes that we see on Titan. Oh my God. Could life, could the business of life get done? Could life originate? Is there a weird life form that could arise in those lakes and seas? I don't know, but I'd sure love to get there and, and, and explore. And then Titan could, of course, within its liquid water ocean beneath its, its icy shell, um, harbor water and carbon-based life, similar to what, what we know and love here on Earth. Now, um, how flammable is a, is a thing? <laughs> like, if you're made of methane and can, ethane... Can you, can you start Titan on fire? Yeah. The short answer is no, because okay. um, in order to light something on fire, what do you need? Oxygen. Yes, okay. bingo. And, right. and so... Uh, uh, Titan's atmosphere has basically no oxygen, um, okay. uh, and and so that actually is one of the limiting factors for me when when I think about the the feasibility of life on on Titan. Okay, so back to general habitability. Kevin says liquid water is one of the keystones. So what else is on our intergalactic shopping list? The other keystones for life are that you need the building blocks the stuff that life is made of, the, the bricks and mortar. Mm -hmm. uh, for us, that's carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, a smattering of some 54 elements from the periodic table. And then the third uh, kind of lesser appreciated keystone is life uh, needs energy. It needs a power source. It needs something that can sustain uh, the, the growth and reproduction and the, and the, the maintenance of, of life. Technically, we, we, we call that the, the redox gradients that, that life harnesses. You bring together a reductant, a compound that likes to give up electrons, with an oxidant uh, mm -hmm. that likes to accept electrons. And for us, we, we uh, Homo sapiens, um, that redox reaction is um, uh, eat some carbohydrates, mm -hmm. eat, eat some food, and breathe in oxygen, and then we do a slow burn in our stomachs and, and biology uh, in us. Now, we're, we're, we're a glorified campfire. <laughs> um, and so we're doing a slow burn with our redox chemistry uh, in, inside our bodies. So next time you're eating fistfuls of cookie dough, just holler, I'm redoxing. Microbes, however, can vary quite a bit and have all kinds of metabolic pathways. So by studying how they do it at the bottom of trenches and in the Arctic and next to volcanoes, we can try to determine how those little bibbas on other planets and moons might go about their business of eating and farting and pooping and mating, as it were. Now, on some moons, that may be easier to envision than on others, Kevin explains. And I think for Enceladus and Europa there probably is some redox chemistry, a reductant oxidant coupling that microbes could harness potentially quite easily. Mm -hmm. um, on Titan, the, the chemical story there for um, redox pairing is a little more complicated. And, mm -hmm. But we got to go. We got to explore. We got to get out there and just see because biology doesn't care what our hypotheses <laughs> are. It's just going to, it, if it can take hold, it will. And... Do you think, in terms of alien life, well, number one, let me ask this. Is it correct to call alien life alien life, extraterrestrials? I mean, aren't we aliens as soon as we go to Europa? So why, how are they the aliens? Like, how, <laughs> what's the proper terminology? Yes, frame of reference is important uh, uh, in, in all of these uh, endeavors. So, yeah, um, uh yeah, if you're uh, an intelligent octopus on Europa and uh, and our uh, 
spacecraft lands there, mm-hmm. then to them, we, of course, are the aliens. <laughs> right? Isn't it weird that we're aliens to someone else right now? I love it. Let's just hope we play that Close Encounters music. Bomb, bomb, bomb. And so, do you think that when we find life, I'm well, well, say, well, but oh, 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 let's let's dive into that a little bit. But or what, if, but go ahead and say when. Do you think we will find teeny tiny critters, or do you think we'll find crazy translucent mammoths? What do you think we might find? Yeah, so um, a, a, a lot to uh, kind of un- unpack in there. Um, no, <laughs> but uh, first let, let, let's change that when to if. Uh, and okay. that's important because both outcomes are incredibly profound. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I certainly am excited about the prospect of discovering life elsewhere. And that's in part because at a more kind of philosophical and, and human level uh, and taking off my real sort of science brain, biology is beautiful. I love uh, life forms and, and seeing how life works. Uh, and so I, I, uh, I'm excited by the prospect of biology being out there in different ecosystems, different planets. Um, and so I do hope it is a when. Mm-hmm. But there again, the universe doesn't care what we want. Uh, and so it could be that uh, life and the origin of life is, is a singularity. It, uh, it's only occurred uh, here on Earth, and we are the first and only instance of it. Uh, and so if we do go out and explore and we don't find life elsewhere, that also is pretty profound because uh, that means that life is rare and, um, and it also puts an even bigger onus on us to, to uh, take care of, of the only life we know. We, of course, have to do that even if we do discover life elsewhere. But uh, but isn't it kind of like if you're looking for your cell phone and you're like, well, I checked my purse. It's not there. My cell phone doesn't exist. And meanwhile, you're like, your cell phone could be anywhere. <laughs> like if we go if we go check places, like there's an infinite number of places we would have to check. 100%. Prove it. Like you'll almost never prove uh, a null result. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but then, so, so let's, uh, let's come back to the other part of your question. Were we to find it, would it be uh, small? Would it be large, microbial, uh, more complex? And this helps me sort of triangulate on one of the aspects of the exploration of ocean worlds like Europa, Enceladus, and Titan that I think is particularly important. And that is that um, I'm really motivated by the prospect of finding what we call extant life Mm -hmm. as opposed to extinct life. Uh, In other words, life that is alive today, life that we could um, see and study and understand how it works. And the reason for that is because I'm in large part interested in the question of, is the origin of life easy or hard? Is there a second origin of life in our own backyard here in the, uh, the solar system? And the reason for that is because if we discover life in our own backyard, if we discover a second origin of life, uh, one that was not seeded by life on Earth, uh, then that means that the origin of life is probably easy. Life arises wherever the conditions are right. And we potentially live 
in a biological universe. Mm -hmm. So looking out at all those exoplanets and everything and say, okay, there's a decent chance that since we found two instances, two independent instances of, of life in our own solar system, uh, the origin of life uh, probably proceeds in, in many different places. So we're looking for life in our backyard, i.e. our own solar system, because if it arose on its own, it would prove that life might be easy. The universe might be filled with critters. And if it's still alive or extant, as opposed to fossilized, we could find out if the building blocks and genetic code involving DNA and RNA, the whole business of ATP, is, as Kevin says, not the only game in town. Is there another system besides DNA and RNA? This is like asking, are there other restaurants in your neighborhood? And are they doing good business? Are they busy? Also, are they pizza places? Or is it something totally different, like Asahi Bowls? Now, would Kevin care about, say, a shuttered and abandoned restaurant? Like, for example, Extinct Life on Mars? I love Mars. Uh, I do some work on Mars. Uh, um, <laughs> I'm sensing there's going to be a however or a but coming up. <laughs> this, is like you're, this sounds like you're breaking up with Mars right now. <laughs> no. Mars, I love you. But uh, Mars is absolutely fantastic. Uh and there, there could be extant life on Mars in the in the subsurface of Mars, and I, and I hope uh, we we explore Mars in that context. Uh, but right now, our our Mars exploration program is primarily focused on the past habitability of Mars, mm -hmm. and that's for very good reason. Uh, you look at at the uh, uh, geologic and geochemical history of Mars, and we see that uh, three and a half billion years ago, it had flowing water, rivers, lakes, um, uh, perhaps even vast oceans uh, that would have been potentially very Earth-like and uh, uh, great places for life as we know it to have uh, existed and thrived. But... Now, today, as, for example, Mar the Mars Curiosity rover is, is um, making its way up Mount Sharp in... in uh, uh, on Mars uh, in Gale Crater, tomorrow it could turn a corner and see stromatolites. Mm -hmm. Stromatolites are, are textures in rocks that can often be um, traced back to microbial mats, um, microbes that uh, have worked in a consortia and perhaps lived three and a half billion years ago and left behind their sort of microbial fossil. Mm -hmm. That would be astonishing. That would be a game changer. Like we'd be jumping up and down. I'd be super excited about that. Um, but there are some limitations. Uh, we can't drill into a stromatolite on Mars and search for DNA. Mm -hmm. We can't do that on planet Earth. Yeah. DNA, the large biomolecules of life, do not last long in the rock record. Mm-hmm. So then we'd find ourselves at a crossroads. Uh, are these um, stromatolites from a rock on Mars, are they uh, evidence of an independent origin of life on Mars billions of years ago? Or are they evidence of life on Earth that was transported to Mars, hitchhiked on some uh, ejecta from an asteroid impact, mm -hmm. which then seeded life on Mars? Or vice versa, it was life on Earth seeded by this ancient stromatolite life form on Mars and then came here. So Earth and Mars have got a, a long-standing relationship of trading material. Let's say, turn a corner, they find a dancing Martian. 
Yeah. And it's like, surprise, I was waiting for you to get here. Where have you been? Yeah. It's just like, it's got maybe a camelback full of water. It's good. Do you think the government would tell us how soon would it be before like a lay person would know? <laughs> now yeah, you're, you're trying to get the real secrets out of me, <laughs> Allie, right? Listen, I'm asking the questions I know that you have. I know you're wondering this. But like, how soon would that come out? Because that would be something that would rock every society on Earth to find out that they're aliens, right? People would freak out. Uh, I, I, um, <laughs> if it was a, a little marching Martian, yes, yeah. uh, that, that uh, would, um, uh, would freak everybody out. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, but let's be clear, there's histor historical precedent, precedent for exactly this. Um, the ALH84001 uh, uh, meteorite, the Mars meteorite, mm -hmm. uh, the Allen Hills meteorite that was um, uh, landed in Antarctica and and um, was studied and could be determined to have come from Mars uh, back in the late 90s. And this actually helped catalyze and, and, and initiate much of the, the current field of astrobiology. Uh, back in the late 90s, there was a big press release and publications about a um, set of evidence from studies of that asteroid that or of that meteorite that pointed to past life on Mars. Holy yeah. smokes. Bill Clinton got up and said, hey, look at this. How amazing is this? This discovery is confirmed. It will surely be one of the most stunning insights into our universe that science has ever uncovered. Great job, NASA. And, uh, <laughs> and it was an, uh, incredibly exciting for NASA and the community. Now, granted, that was a meteorite that landed on Earth. It wasn't a little Martian waving to curiosity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but even that Martian meteorite created a tremendous amount of excitement. Fast forward to today, and just to make sure that the, I put a cap on the, the Mars meteorite story, um, most scientists who study that meteorite think that probably what was seen in that meteorite was contamination from uh, organics on earth and potentially microbes on earth dang it yeah back to your question it if we did find if a spacecraft visiting another world such as a spacecraft on mars or a spacecraft going to europa or a spacecraft going to enceladus or titan if it did find um obvious evidence if, if if biology on those worlds was very generous uh and and made itself readily apparent mm -hmm. uh, that would just be phenomenal uh I, I i hope that everybody would be thrilled and excited uh and um uh and i often get asked well what then you know what good is that uh why should we uh, be spending money on this or other thing it's like, yeah, it, you know, that discovery, it's not going to change the way you make your coffee in the morning. It's not going to shorten your commute. Um, <laughs> but um, it really would mark uh, the beginning of a new understanding, a new revolution in how we think about biology, the science of biology, and the stuff that is us, the mm -hmm. phenomenon of life, our very phenomenon. Uh, and, and to put that in context... And it's also very exciting in terms of the time in which we live. Mm -hmm. Galileo couldn't 
send a spacecraft to Mars to search for evidence of life on Mars or to Europa or Enceladus or Titan or any of these other places. For the first time in the history of humanity, we have the tools and technology to do this last great experiment to see whether or not biology and the phenomenon of life works beyond Earth. So let's get it done. I'd, you know, I'd love to get out there. So when you think of aliens, like just slow your roll. Start small. Maybe think of like a little goofy little bleep blorp microbes instead of, you know, what we all think about when we talk about extraterrestrials. Why are they always naked? Why do you think we have such iconic imagery of these gray aliens with big heads? Where do you think these <laughs> kind of stories are coming from? Because when we expect to see aliens, why do you think we expect to see these particular visions? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, it's, um, I, I don't have a good succinct answer to that. I, I, I think it really at the heart of it reveals some of our own anthropocentric bias. Uh, I'm a tremendous fan of, of what arrival did mm. and, um, uh, thinking about, um, life forms that would evolve in much different environments. But I think the, the whole phenomenon of aliens, UFOs, et cetera, that kind of stuff, it is interesting historically. Um, if you look at William James, the varieties of religious experience. Quick aside. So Dr. William James was a Victorian era psychologist who believed in ghosts and telepathy but who thought that religious experiences can come in all shapes and sizes, from what I gather. Now, this dead psychologist, Dr. William James, is not to be confused with the alive UFOologist, UFOlogist? Dr. William J. Burns, who's the editor of UFO Magazine, and believes that, like an influencer wielding Facetune, NASA airbrushes extraterrestrials out of photos all the time. Anyway, theories have been simmering for centuries. And the different kinds of, of experience people had centuries ago that they ascribed to divine intervention, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I think some of those same psychological phenomenon also inform the experiences that people have when they think that they've experienced something with, with um, alien life forms, abductions, and all those things. I'm... By no means a specialist in that, but there again, the, my interest in psychology has, has sent me down those roads many times. So how many people in the U.S. believe in aliens? Well, a 2017 poll showed that nearly half did, but a slim 16% had reported seeing a UFO. Now, among the believers, Kesha, Nick Jonas, that lady from The Nanny, Casey Musgraves, Russell Crowe, Kendall Jenner, and Demi Lovato who, if nothing else, has admirable conviction. I believe that there could possibly be mermaids, which is a actually an alien species that lives in parts of the Indian Ocean, which we have never explored before as okay. human beings. Also Tom Cruise, but duh. Okay, so now Kevin, remember, was a researcher at SETI listening for signals. Now, I found one very sketchy article claiming that a bunch of astronauts have reported that the skies above us are just a traffic jam of flying saucers, and there's an alien space station on the moon. But even supposing all of that is true, how would we communicate? What do we do, charades? When it comes to trying to, say, read signals from 
other planets, other civilizations. How do we know that we will have the right antenna to pick it up? Like, we don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's a, it's a great question. And, and my friends and colleagues at the SETI Institute uh, obsess over that kind of question. Mm-hmm. Uh, even within the, the um, frequency space of, of our radio search, there's still so much to explore. And uh, um, Frank Drake and Jill Tarter and Seth and, and um, Dan Wertheimer and, and, and others have focused in uh, throughout the years on uh, particular wavelengths where the cosmos itself is quiet and it would sort of make for a, a, a good broadcast and transmission um, in, in the, the radio part of the spectrum. But then another colleague of mine, uh, uh, Andrew Howard, who's now at Caltech and, and uh, his advisor at Har- Harvard, uh, Paul Horowitz, uh, they were some big innovators on optical SETI. If you think about an advanced civilization, um, well, think about the center of the Milky Way galaxy. Mm-hmm. I hope the center of the Milky Way galaxy is like, well, okay, let's put this in context. Um, we are in the boondocks of the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. We're eight and a half kiloparsecs out. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, suffice to say, that's um, uh, a long ways out from the, the galactic bulge. That's right. That's right. The densely packed cluster of stars at the center of a spiral galaxy is called a galactic bulge. Someone please go as one for Halloween. It's March. It's not too late to get started on a luminous, starry codpiece and some twinkling, spirally arms. I hope that the center of the galaxy is teeming with life and we've got advanced civilizations and they're they're darting back and forth and there's a galactic internet, the sort of, you know, <laughs> modern version of what Carl Sagan used to like to call the Encyclopedia Galactica. Um, we, or we, uh, I hope that is happening right now in the center of our galaxy. Those civilizations would probably communicate with, with, um, <laughs> with laser beams, with uh, optical beams directed uh, star to star, planet to planet, uh, spacecraft to spacecraft, etc. It's just more efficient to, to send transmissions that way. And so one of the ways that uh, SETI researchers are now looking for signals from advanced civilizations is looking for those nanosecond pulses in the sort of visible part of the light spectrum, ah. which so far nothing, but... Um, there's still so much to search. There could be aliens sending laser grams right now. It's <laughs> being like, party, party on my moon tonight. Exactly. Okay, I'm going to pose a theory. You can use this in a paper if you want to. It's fine. Just credit me. But what if dark matter, dark energy is just full of ghosts and aliens? Yeah, that's that's beyond my pay grade. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so. We don't know exactly what it is or what it's doing. It's lousy with ghosts and aliens. Right. Yes. And and to that I say uh, we are the 4%. Okay. Uh, right. Uh, <laughs> everything that we see, we know and love is is 4% of mm-hmm. the known universe. And actually I think it's it's more it's closer to 1% when you actually consider the particles with which we interact. Oof. Uh, uh, yeah, but that's, that's if you- if you're going to use it in a TED Talk, it's fine. Just put a slide. This is thank you. Okay. Are you ready for some Patreon questions? Sure. Okay. But before we get to listener questions from Patreon, a quick word from our sponsors who have allowed me to raise the pay of the folks who help me make ologies. Also, let me donate to a cause of the ologist choosing. 
This week, Dr. Kevin Peterhand chose to support the work of Traveling Telescope, and this is a cause started by Susan Marabona and her husband Chu and colleagues to share astronomy with school kids and the general public in Kenya. They say that they regularly visit both government and private schools, expose students to a variety of astronomy tools and concepts, giving the students practical, hands-on experience with astronomy is important if we are to inspire young people to be the scientists of tomorrow. So that is Traveling Telescope, and there will be a link in the show notes if you want to know more about them. Now, an additional donation this week was made to Vermont's Manchester Rescue Squad in memory of Peter Hand, Kevin's father, who passed away last summer. And the Manchester Rescue Squad provides 24-hour, 365 paramedic-level emergency care via paid staff and volunteers. They also do CPR and first aid classes. So on behalf of all the Ologites, our heart goes out to the hands. Okay, now some messages from a few sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So is my brain. Here's a thought experiment. Think of all the time that you spend just scrolling on things or not doing the things you want to do. I know, time is the most valuable thing that you have. Oh boy, let me tell you I had to learn this over time. You know what helped? Therapy. Therapy can help you figure out what matters most to you and how to prioritize it so that you like your life more. And where I learned that was better help. Because yes, I have been a client. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, I know how hard it is to get started. BetterHelp makes it very easy. It's entirely online. It's convenient. It's flexible. You take a quick questionnaire. They match you with a therapist. Instead of just Googling and trying to find someone with an opening, BetterHelp makes it very accessible. And I like that. It's also more affordable than traditional therapy. And you can chat. You can text. You can do video calls. You can do phone calls. For some reason, you are not vibing with your therapist. You can switch at any time. No extra cost. No drama. So let me tell you. Time is precious. Figure out where you want to spend yours. And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. So that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. It's about time. KiwiCo. You know I love KiwiCo because making stuff and learning while you do it, the best way. And KiwiCo is great. They deliver seriously fun learning for kids of all ages. They have these hands-on projects and activities and each month kids receive crates that are engaging and that introduce them to things like science and technology or concepts and art. And I love that all the things you need are in there so you're not going to be running out to the store to get pipe cleaners. You're not going to run out of glue or something. And KiwiCo tests these crates with professionals and with kids to make them the best they can be. There's so many different projects depending on what your kiddo's interested in, what age or grade level they're at. You can discover the science of magic. You can engineer a domino machine. These make great gifts. I have given these to so many kids. And I also like that there's no commitment so you can pause or cancel crates anytime. So redefine learning with play. You can explore projects that build confidence and problem-solving skills with KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month on any crate line at kiwico.com with the promo code ologies. So that's 50% off your first month at kiwico.com, promo code ologies. They're going to love it. Did you know that Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day alive and thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. Available 24-7, you can talk to a plant 
plant expert about your soil type, your landscape design, and they curate thousands of plants. They got climates, they got locations. I am stoked about this because I've wanted a fig tree for so long and I'm like, I don't know where to get the fig tree. I'm not quite sure where to plant it in the yard. And I went to the Fast Growing Trees website and I was like, boom, I'm in zone 10. This fig tree would work well for me. Done. And right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants and listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code ologies at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code ologies at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code ologies offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. How you doing on that D, that vitamin D? Could be better. I feel ya. Some of us are coming out of a winter. I don't know how much outside time you get. I don't know how your vitamin D is dietarily, but I know a lot of people, including myself, especially women over 18, 97% of us not getting enough vitamin D from our diet. Ritual's like, how about I help you? They're a clinically backed multivitamin. So skeptics, here's a multivitamin that's like, yeah, we use science to formulate this. I think you're gonna like it. Ritual multivitamins are vegan. They're gluten and major allergen free. I also like that Ritual is a female founded B Corp. So they're doing good for the health of people and the planet. Ritual multivitamins are also gentle on an empty stomach. I like though when I open mine, they have kind of a minty essence. I've got Ritual vitamins in my belly right now, to be honest, I take them every day. They have kind of a lava lamp look with oil and beads inside. I also have their melatonin caps at night when I need to go bye-bye Z's. So no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. And get 20% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash ologies. So start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. So that's ritual.com slash ologies for 20% off. All right, your questions. Okay, Patreon questions. We got a gazillion. Okay. I, I'll do what I can. Okay. Uh, it's kind of a lightning round. Okay. Shoot from the hip. I categorize them as best I could. Okay. So Jasmine Wells, Vincent, Maddie Worker, and Mike Marlowe all kind of want to know, as a firm believer of other forms of life, what's the most probable planet for alien life to exist on? Like, what are the most likely places? Europa yeah. Titan. Mars is fantastic. Mars is still a, a, um, a, a wonderful place to look for evidence of past life and potentially life that's alive today. We'll just have to dig a lot deeper. So I put Mars, Europa, Enceladus, and Titan. Okay. And when it comes to the search for extant life, I really prioritize Europa and Enceladus for extant life similar to life as we know it. And then if we go one layer deeper, I prioritize Europa over Enceladus for a couple of different reasons. Europa, we have good reason to predict, has had an ocean for the history of the solar system. Ooh. Yeah. So it's an ocean that's been around for a while. Enceladus, there's still some question marks. The reason Saturn has rings is because some sort of collision, some sort of impact event happened in the neighborhood of the moons of Saturn in the past tens to hundreds of millions of years ago. Okay, so remember Enceladus, one of Saturn's moons? Kevin says that Saturn had had some drama in the last tens of billions of years. So did Enceladus form from that? Is its ocean relatively young? Uh, we don't know. Will those rings glom together to form moons eventually? Well, uh, a bunch of it will go into Saturn and a bunch of it will, will sort of drift in the other direction uh, uh, further out and um, stuff will continue to glom onto the existing moons and 
uh, and so yeah, it's going to continue to be a, a bit of a of a pinball game out there in the Saturnian system. So many people had the same question, and I'm going to say all of their names right now: Elizabeth Gable, Juan Wee, Renee Coley, Mads Clement, uh, Moses Bibby, Devin Robertson, Dion Dabolo, Anthony Stoll. Oh, and also Lanny Bauer, Nathan Algram, Theodore Vissian, Sanira Seth. Sarah Clark, Jack Gavin, Jordan Wermey, Lauren Paul, Erica Kane, and Tony Rosso all asked, what, well, is there already non-carbon-based life on Earth? What is the possibility of extraterrestrial non-carbon-based life? Could it be silicon-based? Is that possible? What would that look like? It's a great question. Uh, one that I definitely ponder. Uh, one that... Um, I don't necessarily have a good answer to because um, what we know of life so far is that life needs a good balance between larger information molecules that can, you know, the, the store the software mm -hmm. for us. That's DNA, obviously. Uh, and so you need those molecules to be made of elements that can bond together and are stable. But you don't want those molecules to be too stable because you got to tear them apart and translate them and figure out what they're saying. And then the, you know, the RNA and the, the, the worker bees of life as we know it have to go off and build the proteins and, and, uh, and make the business of life. Mm -hmm. So from a feasibility of life using other things like silicon, et cetera, um, every time I go down this road, it's like, Gosh darn it, carbon is just such a, a good element for not just bonding with itself and bonding with other elements uh, and forming long molecules. It's also really good, albeit at temperatures and pressures that are found here on Earth and frankly many of the other planets. Uh, it's also really good at forming molecules that occupy that nice sweet spot of you can be large and stable, but not so stable that you can't be broken apart and replicated and, and or metabolized and stuff. Mm -hmm. And all you got to do is look at the rocks on Earth. The rocks on Earth are made of uh, strings of silicon, right? Oh, they, yeah. they, the silicates, the silicon linked to... Uh, four oxygen atoms and then various metals bounded in there. Um, you know, if silicon-based life could have evolved on Earth, it had plenty of opportunity. Right. So water and carbon-based life, yeah, it's it's a pretty darn good solution to use that, use the word solution uh, <laughs> appropriately. But, that was rock solid right. pun there. <laughs> But uh, I would love nothing more than to, you know, go to a world like Titan or see some big mothership in the sky that comes down with silicon-based life. And, the, and keep in mind, of course, that silicon-based life could be the future of life as we know it uh, mm -hmm. when we think about our mushy bags of water and carbon, um, uh, silicon-based life that uh, we then create in advance. Uh, could obviously have a, 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 a much greater um, staying power uh, galactically than, than uh, carbon and water-based life. So that's like a maybe? Well, it, it's a great question, and I, I love to think about it. Um, but every time I go down the, the, the rabbit hole of chemical feasibility, 
Uh, Carbon pops its head up. Oh, yeah, you think you can beat me? (laughs) Carbon's like, yeah, I got this back. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it's exciting to see that that, uh, your audience is interested in that question. Um, Other people had questions about the oceans. Um, Trying to settle a debate, Oceana Reese asks, are deep sea creatures aliens? I think they are. And also, are we looking at the deep sea to provide any clues of what could exist on other planets? Yeah, great uh, questions. Uh, the answer to the first one is um, as alien as they are, and I've gotten to see some of them up close, um, and as astonishing and beautiful and, and bizarre as they are, they are very well connected into our tree of life. <laughs> they are based on DNA and RNA and the ATP paradigm uh, with proteins, etc. So yeah, they are not um, different from life as we know it. So are we looking in our own oceans to uh, see whether or not our search for life elsewhere can be informed by life that works in these these deep ocean environments? Uh, the answer is absolutely. And it's something that I'm, I'm very passionate about and I've been fortunate to be able to take part in some of that exploration in science. The depths of our trenches, uh, the Mariana Trench, the New Britain Trench, the Japan Trench, all these places that are in what we call the Hadal Depths, uh, deeper than six kilometers down in our own ocean, those environments are incredibly poorly explored. There's so much great work yet to be done. And from an astrobiology standpoint, they offer a great bridge for learning about the environmental conditions that could affect the habitability of these these distant worlds. It's entirely plausible that we could go to a world like Europa or Enceladus and discover that it has the right liquid water, chemical conditions, etc. It is, quote-unquote, habitable, but not inhabited. Mm-hmm. And that could be because the origin of life is a bottleneck. The origin of life could be quite hard. So going to these deep ocean environments, going to places on Earth that uh, serve as analogs for uh, the conditions that we might find elsewhere is part of uh, NASA's astrobiology program. All right, I'm going to keep blazing through these. Ready? Uh, Sophia Garbos, great question. Do you think they have been here and left? What are the chances? Have aliens been here and bounced? Uh, I don't know um, if they came and went. They haven't left uh, so much as a paperclip. Uh, and, <laughs> and as a scientist, I need hard evidence. Okay. Uh, so as much as I um, have read anecdotes and, and uh, want to believe, to use the X-Files, uh, <laughs> you know, it's at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, um, Give me a alien paperclip, or, or as Seth Shawstack says, you know, bring back a fork from uh, from the the mothership. What is it? It's a dingle hopper. Um, wait. That brings me to someone. Two people had this same question. Uh, Sophie Cozano and Heather Shaver wanted to know: Are you more of a Mulder or a Scully? Are you in the Mulder fan cult? I interesting. So the uh uh. Yeah, I, I, I'm a, a hybridized love child of two of them. Let's, let's okay. Let's, <laughs> Both of their DNAs combined yeah. into a carbon-based water bag known yeah. as you. <laughs> um, Justin Griggs and Casey Wright, first-time question askers, wanted to know what's the coolest gadget we currently have, and if you were given unlimited funds, like what kind of imaging or radio equipment would you use? 
Well, that's a that's a really interesting question. Um, and layered into that question is that um, when we think about the search for life elsewhere and actually doing those experiments, and this is what I spend much of my days doing, I'm, I'm the uh, pre-project scientist for the Europa Lander mission concept. Uh, this is a mission that is far from greenlit. Our team of scientists and engineers has been working on this for many years. Uh, NASA currently has a a mission going to Jupiter to study Europa. That's the Europa Clipper mission. Uh, and it's it's a mission that will fly by Europa and do remote sensing. Look as it makes those flybys uh, to take images, do spectroscopy, do ice penetrating radar studies. It's an absolutely amazing uh, mission and the data is going to be incredible. Um, and I'm a co-investigator on that mission. And hopefully, someday following on that mission, we can put a landed vehicle on the surface to dig up some material and look directly for signs of life. Use a microscope to look for morphologic indicators, little mm -hmm. cells if they exist. Uh, use things like mass spectrometry or uh, infrared or Raman spectrometry to look for organics and other things. And so to your listener's question, in the biotech world here on Earth, we've made tons of progress in sequencing DNA and, and you know, 23andMe and all this stuff. But when I think about a payload for exploring a world like Europa, mm -hmm. we can't use DNA-based analytical systems because then we might miss life. Even if it's carbon and water-based, it may well not be DNA-based. Mm -hmm. It would be really interesting if it was, because that would set the stage for some evolutionary debates on convergence versus contingency and, and DNA arising independently uh, more than once. I think what this means is, would DNA appearing in extraterrestrial organisms be total chance or developed because of circumstances kind of steered evolution toward that efficient coding formation again. Who the hell knows, people? Literally no one, at least not on this planet. Maybe Kesha knows. But we certainly don't want our instrumentation and our measurements to require that life form to be based on DNA. Right. It's like taking a VCR somewhere. Maybe yes. they got laser discs. <laughs> great, great analogy. What are you going to do with that? Exactly. And that's important to appreciate with a lot of the biotech, they're, they're feeding into those that instrumentation are primers that are um, uh, that latch on to DNA in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's like a, a VCR. Um, you got a thumb drive and a... In an eight track. What the hell are you going to do? <laughs> exactly. Um, a lot of people, including Lauren Murray, Sarah Clark, Timothy Dykes, Joe O'Bannon, Jane Joy, Jenny Hoover, Jeffrey Katz, all kind of wanted to know, in Jeffrey Katz's words, do you think intelligent aliens would look somewhat like us? Like, as we evolve, some things seemed efficient, like bilateral symmetry, mm -hmm. four extremities, yeah. uh, to use to manipulate tools. Are they going to look like our us? So, uh, instead of answering the question, will alien life uh, look like us? I like to do the experiment of what if we reran the life on Earth again? Mm -hmm. um, 
would we end up with homo sapiens? Mm. Uh, and you can look at different convergent and contingent events in, in evolutionary history. Obviously, one that's a that's uh, great to examine is the uh, impact event that extinguished the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. What if that didn't happen? Would the dinosaurs have uh, evolved into intelligent communicating uh, creatures with useful thumbs and uh, and all that? And Star Trek certainly has examined uh, those kinds of scenarios. And I think there's a case to be made that early on in the evolution of intelligence, if you do not figure out how to use tools uh, and how to build shelters uh, and how to propagate information beyond the single generational timescale, in other words, the printing press and mm -hmm. <laughs> the internet and all these things, if you don't develop that relatively quickly, you will become extinct just by the nature of the fact that the cosmos is full of, of hazards and eventually a large impact event will wipe you out. Kaboom. No, thank you. I'll fast forward to us. And now, clearly, we are at an inflection point. Yes. We're messing up the home planet. Yeah. Climate change is going gangbusters and, and planet Earth is saying, hey, we're going to shut down this subsystem. So our, our life support system is being challenged by our own existence. Coupled with that, we could still have a, uh, an impact from outer space that wipes us out. And so, in my opinion, the clock is ticking on us to get some real intelligence and, and learn how to be a longer lived uh, species. Um, so <laughs> if we reran the clock, would you end up with bilateral symmetry? I think yes. Um, would you end up with eyes? I think yes. You can look at the evolution of eyes and it's occurred some 50 or more times in different organisms on earth. Uh, obviously photo sensing makes a lot of sense. The senses that we have, smell and taste are variations on chemical sensors and, and that's very useful i get intrigued by some of the the sensory modalities that are not as ubiquitous mm -hmm. um sensing the polarization of light uh, uh as as bees do yeah um sensing magnetic fields um echolocation as yeah. obviously um bats and dolphins and other creatures do yeah is there a world in which those sensory modalities become more prevalent in the the primary biological paradigm of a of a planet? Perhaps. Ooh. Yeah. Who knows what an ultrasound antenna would look like? Exactly. Well, and, and that in part goes to arrival, right? And mm -hmm. the, the way in which those creatures um, communicated through sound and and the the circular, timeless uh, ink blots. Okay, from ink blots to the grape filter. So several listeners, including Dion Dabolo, Tyler Q, Donald McLeod, Christopher Barley, and Katie Boyd asked about the grape filter, which is the notion that the reason we've got radio silence from extraterrestrials is that our kind of advanced civilizations are either a one-off, just us, or they die out before they're capable of communicating with one another. Kevin says that if we make it through our own population growth and carelessness with the planet and aren't just randomly boned by a space rock, there is the prospect of finding another civilization if a signal is out there. But, he says, on the flip side... Uh, I'm sure many of your listeners have probably 
I read the three body problem and the, that trilogy, which is a fantastic trilogy and the, the second book called the dark forest, which really gets into the question of, do you actually want to reach out and make contact? Yeah. Is that a safe thing to do? Um, and I think that's a very important question to ponder. And, and uh, from a transmission standpoint, um, do you really want to transmit? I don't think I have uh, a, a clear answer right now. I, I've, I've got thoughts on both uh, yes and no for transmitting. But short of that, we can certainly do a heck of a lot more in listening. And that is something that I, I advocate for and hope we, we do more of. So it's like reaching out and texting your ex versus just lurking on their Twitter late at night. A few people asked Christopher Barley, Lael Defkova, and first-time question asker Rebecca Lee Richardson, does Fermi Paradox make you sad? <laughs> does the Fermi Paradox make me sad? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, like, where are they? And, uh, and why haven't we found them yet? Yeah. Um, in some ways it does. Uh, and uh, to the extent that it makes uh, your, your listener sad, I, I, <laughs> I sympathize. Uh, but uh, people like uh, Jill Tarter and the folks uh, up at the SETI Institute um, uh, serve as great inspiration. And when uh, you talk to them about this stuff, um, I was like, well, we just, we really have not listened enough we haven't looked uh uh, in in we know where to look we just have not yet had time or the computing power um uh, to to really search the haystack for the needle so we gotta keep keep searching keep working (laughs) keep working you're employed forever oh yeah to find that life (laughs) um okay one last question from listeners great question asked by joe perfido as well as Chris Bauman, Danny King, Jenny Kovacic. In your opinion, did the tardigrade come from outer space? <laughs> What's the deal with tardigrades? Should we send them to Mars? Let's yeah. talk tardies. Tardigrades, those little water bears, um, they are curious little creatures. Um, and uh, uh, they are, again, DNA-based, RNA-based. We, we can fit them into the tree of life on Earth okay. uh, very well. So they make sense. Okay. That said, they sure are curious little creatures, aren't they? A tardigrade, by the way, is this teeny tiny micro animal. It looks kind of like if a futon cushion had eight stumpy little legs and then a vacuum for a face. And they're 530 million years old, at least. They've been everywhere from the Antarctic to the deep sea to volcanoes. They can survive like a decade without any water and crazy temperatures and space radiation. If you soak a piece of moss in water and then you look under like a low power microscope, you might be able to spot one. But yeah, Kevin says, sorry, y'all, they're earthlings. Okay, last two questions I always ask. What is something that is the shittiest part of your job? The thing that you dislike the most about what you do or about alien life or maybe some flim flam that you'd like to debunk, some myths that irk you? What is What gets your goat when it comes to astrobiology? So annoying. Um, uh, honestly, the thing that, that comes to mind, of course, as a scientist, the ubiquitous answer is 
we hate writing proposals, begging for money, getting rejected. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just part of the life cycle of a scientist across the board. That's not specific to astrobiology. Uh, I guess the the sad part is um, for all of the exciting stuff that we discussed here today. Um, boy, I wish we could just get going with it. It is uh through the generosity and dedication and excitement of the taxpayer who make nasa and all of this stuff possible so if you want to see us move faster just keep on being interested in the stuff and express it to your various uh folks who help make the high level decisions that are well beyond my uh, pay grade tweet about nasa that's what we gotta do <laughs> on the search for life in astrobiology uh, what about your favorite thing about astrobiology or your job? The best? Uh, you know, I've got a lot of great colleagues and we love brainstorming about uh, forcing each other to think out of the box. I have a position at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, an amazing institution that is a pioneer in the field of ocean exploration. And I go there and I, I visit colleagues like Chris German and Julie Huber and others. And we just have a blast forcing each other to think out of the box about how to explore planet Earth and understand life on Earth and how to apply that to worlds and wonders beyond Earth. So that kind of uh, intellectual popping the popcorn is, is a lot of fun. And at JPL, I get to do that with engineers. Uh, I'm just a silly scientist with crazy ideas. I can't do anything without the engineers who figure out how to actually implement the ideas of, of myself and my, my fellow colleagues. They're the ones who are actually getting these missions done and making sure that when they fly by or orbit or land on a distant world, uh, we get those bits back that uh, can revolutionize uh, our understanding of how the universe works. If someone wanted to be an astrobiologist, what would you tell them? Where do they start? Yeah, it's a great question. In the field of astrobiology today there's biologists chemists geologists geochemists uh, oceanographers uh, my own background physics and and astronomy and and uh, geological environmental sciences i also did a master's in robotics um, it takes all kinds to get this sort of um let me use a few buzzwords, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary kind of research done. And so what I tell students and, and folks interested is uh, within the framework of sciences that feed into astrobiology, follow your passion. Biology, geology, physics, astronomy, et cetera, et cetera, um, chemistry. And enjoy that fundamental research and then extend and bridge it into astrobiology. Smart. It's just the sound of so many people changing their majors right now. Thank you for studying aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me here to talk about aliens. So whether it's about aliens or squirrels, the theme here, ask smart people stupid questions. Because what a shame not to know your surroundings. Now, you can become a Dr. Kevin Peter Han fan by following him at Alien Oceans on Twitter. On Instagram, he's Kevin underscore Peter underscore Hand. And once again, the charities we talked about were Traveling Telescope and the Manchester Rescue Squad. Both are linked in the show notes in case you're curious about them, um, alongside all the sponsors of the show and any codes that you might need. You can find those links up at alleyword.com 
to find Ologies. You can follow along on Twitter at Ologies, also at Ologies on Instagram. I'm Allie Ward with one L on both. And yeah, that's alien. No N. Now, if you're in the LA area, I'm moderating talks at the Natural History Museum for their First Friday series. So that's the first Friday of April, of May, of June. You just come in. I'm doing some talks with ologists there. and I'm just kind of doing a live Q&A with them. So come say hi. Uh, more on that is at nhm.org. I also have my own science show on the CW called Did I Mention Invention? And I'm a correspondent on Innovation Nation on CBS every Saturday. Um, if you're a Netflix haver, you can check out Brainchild, wherein I am in a beehive explaining science every episode. Um, also, happy birthday to my wonderful sister, Janelle. I'm very, very proud to share Earthling DNA with you. Um, for Ologies t-shirts with the Ologies logo and mugs and totes and pins and hats, go to ologiesmerch.com. You can tag your Instagram photos, Ologies merch, so I can post them on Mondays. Um, thank you, Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch for managing that. Thank you, Aaron Talbert and Hannah Lippo for adminning the Facebook group. Thank you to interns Harry Kim and Kayla Patton, to assistant editor Jarrett Sleeper of Mind Jam Media and the new combat podcast Fight Stuff, in case you're into boxing and MMA. Um, and of course, the mully to my sculptor, Stephen Ray Morris of the Percast and See Jurassic Right, and to Nick Thorburn who wrote and performed the theme music. Now, if you stick around to the end, you know, I tell you a secret. This week, when I was younger, my sister and I used to love eating SpaghettiOs with meatballs. And we had this tactic where we would eat the SpaghettiOs and then save all the meatballs on a smaller, separate plate. And then at the very end, you would just get an entire mouth full of meatballs. <laughs> Thinking about it now sounds so gross, but it was just heaven as a child. So, um,. That's it. That's all I got. Have a good week, everyone. Bye-bye. Pachydermatology. Homeology. Cryptozoology. Lithology. Nanotechnology. Meteorology. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.